0: Good morning. Uh, As we turn to chapter 18 in the Gospel of John, we finally come to where it's all been headed. Uh, From the opening chapter in uh, John 1 verse 11, uh, we are told that Jesus was not going to be accepted. Now this itself is a reference to the one promised in Isaiah 53 verse 3, the Saviour who would be despised and ultimately rejected by men. The sacrifice that is going to be offered on the cross was alluded to by John the Baptist in chapter 1, verse 29, when he describes Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This, of course, first a reference uh, to the Passover Lamb, uh, a reference to the, the blood sheds so of the people would be saved. Uh, however, that again is also a reference to the ultimate sacrificial lamb, long hoped for and prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 53, verse 7. It means that from the opening verses, this entire gospel has been headed to this point, the night that he is betrayed and tried before a biased court. Each chapter from the first has led to the day that Jesus is crucified and resurrected. However, the mentions of Isaiah make it clear that this is a journey that has been coming for a much longer time than that. Uh, Indeed, I'm fond of saying that as the crunch of the fruit reverberated around Eden, Christ was headed for the cross. However, even though that's the moment that the journey began, even before that, Jesus knew. I mean, he knew that he'd be slain before the foundation of the world, as we see in uh, Revelation 13, verse 8. It means that this moment, this dark and terrifying moment for the disciples this incredibly hard moment for Jesus Christ, uh, despite all that, there is still a reason to rejoice. For as we read in Titus 1, verse 2, eternal life was guaranteed even before creation. And as we read through these next few chapters in John, we see why. As such, it, it is important uh, that uh, to remember that as things seem to go awry, we recognise that Jesus is not caught out or surprised by these events. Instead, uh, as we read the text, we discovered uh, actually, even now, he is the one in control. And this is important, because that same Jesus, the one who was not surprised or confused by the events in his day, uh, remains equally unperturbed by the chaos of the world today it means that he who was not overcome by the uh, events that surrounded that time in the garden that time towards the cross uh, so too he is not overcome by the events that assail each of us and importantly as we read john in john 18 even in the darkest moments he is still god so the opening verse of our text takes up where we left the narrative in chapter 14, verse 31. Now, following the meal, the teaching and the prayer, Jesus and the disciples move to this garden. Uh, As we see in verse 2, this is not an attempt to hide from the authorities. It is his custom, a place where he would be found. Uh, Indeed, he goes there to meet this appointment that was set before time began. And so though this seems to be Judas' hour, though it seems to be Satan's hour, where it seems that Christ is defeated, actually Jesus knows exactly what he is doing. Nonetheless, as we read in verse 3, here comes the betrayer, accompanied by a surprisingly large company who plan to arrest Jesus. Indeed, the, the, the list of people, the soldiers and officers and Pharisees, seems ridiculous in the face of the small group that face them. Indeed, the, the soldiers alone, given the type of officer that's uh, referred to in chapter 18, verse 12, could well have numbered uh, about 500. Uh, this large crowd. And they were further armed with lanterns and torches and weapons, making it a band maybe appropriate for a violent criminal. Uh, but entirely inappropriate for Jesus, who offers no resistance, and who is innocent of all the charges who be brought against him. Verse 4 then brings to the fore the point that I raised at the outset. Jesus is fully aware of everything that is going to happen. As As we read, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? The foreknowledge of Jesus it's something that John has stressed previously. Jesus had long known and told his disciples he was going to die. In John 13, verse 1, at the time of the Last Supper, we're told that Jesus was fully aware that his death was imminent. He knew exactly who's going to betray him, and he makes that clear uh, at the meal in that same chapter in verse 11. However, this knowledge is accompanied with complete control. This foreknowledge and authority is actually a combination that rightly belongs to Jesus. We see that earlier in John's Gospel, in chapter 10, verses 17 to 18, and this is what it says. "'I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again.'" And this is the charge that I received from my father. So here in verse four, we see Jesus, who is in control, take the initiative. He is the one that approaches this crowd that have come for him. He is the one that questions them. The authority that he has becomes even clearer in verse five. Uh, when upon hearing that they seek Jesus of Nazareth, uh, Nazareth he answers, I am he. Now, at one level, he's simply helping to identify uh, who he is. Um, He is indeed the one that they have come to arrest. However, the use of I am uh, provides a glimpse uh, into a confession that is far greater. Indeed, the reason for the foreknowledge, the basis of his authority is in the fact that Jesus can stand there and say, I am. Now, you'll notice that I tend to use the name Yahweh when it is written in the text, uh, though we have a long habit of obscuring the name of God. Uh, I must say, I actually think it's the most precious word in the whole of the Hebrew language. Unlike the other words used to describe God, or unlike the other titles that reveal something about him, this is the name of God. This name that he revealed about himself, you know, it tells us of a person. It says, loud and clear that relationship is possible, that love and closeness are at hand. This is who I am, it cries. And as he is beyond our comprehension, there is no other word that could possibly convey so much. And much of this is very often obscured when we replace his name with a title. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is actually the most frequently employed term for God. And that's because, for his people, he is more than just the Almighty, uh, more than simply the all-seeing, or all-powerful, or all-providing, or all-knowing, eternal one. He is that, but more because he is Yahweh, which means that the people of God can say, I am his, and he is mine. That's what lies behind the name that we very often choose to obscure. Now the noun Yahweh comes from the Hebrew verb, uh, heya, to be, uh, and the use of both can be seen in the way that God describes himself to Moses in Exodus 3, verses 14 to 15. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. God also says to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And as such, I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And when God says, I am that which I am, he is telling Moses and all of us who would read these words later, I know he is saying, I am So I am beyond your fathoming. I am and you cannot control me for I will be who I will be. I am and I need no other. I am unchangeable and I will not be anything else but I am. I am eternal. I am all you need and nothing else. All you need for salvation. All you need for life. I am faithful and I can be no less. I am God. And it says so much more. In the Gospel of John, there are seven occasions where Jesus seeks to expand what is understood by the I am. Uh, when it comes to his earthly ministry, we see it uh, uh, on these seven occasions. And in each, he combines the idea of being I am, uh, of being God, and particularly the author of life, uh, alongside his mission of salvation and therefore eternal life. In John six thirty-five, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now this is a declaration that he is God, he is the I am, uh, but that means that he is the one that provided the bread and thus saved the lives of the Israelites in the desert. Uh, Now the I am says to his hearers, as the one who created life, I am able to provide eternal life for you. In John 8, 12, we read Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Uh, From the beginning, God, the I am, brought light into the darkness at creation. In Isaiah 9, verse 2, we see the promise concerning the one who is going to bring the people who are living in darkness into his great light. Here, Jesus, as the I am, is the light that is available to us. And in keeping with Isaiah, we find that through him, we no longer need to live in the darkness of the world. In John 10, verse 9. We read, I am the door. Uh, This is a symbol of salvation explained when Jesus says that anyone who enters by me will be saved. As the I am, God was the only one who could offer salvation. This is the message of Exodus 15, verse 2, where following the great rescue of the people, Yahweh is proclaimed as the only means of salvation. As the great I am, Jesus declares he is the only means of salvation. In John 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Uh, This is one of the key descriptions of God in the Old Testament. Uh, And we have the truly glorious picture of Yahweh, the the good shepherd, who is willing to hold the weak close to his heart in Isaiah 40, verse 11. That example of the good shepherd is a comparison to the bad shepherds, the human leaders uh, who have let the people down and led them astray. It's a common image for Yahweh. We see it many times uh, in the Old Testament, uh, from Psalm 23 all the way through to uh, Ezekiel 34, uh, 12 to 16. In John 10, we see Jesus, the Good Shepherd, who provides eternal life and at the cost of his own. You know, the theme of salvation, something that is only in the gift of God, the great I am, is seen in John 11, uh, verse 25 to 26, when we read, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. The exclusive nature of Jesus being the only way is seen in John 14, verse 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The reference to the way brings to mind Isaiah 35, verse 8, the way of holiness by which the redeemed are able with great rejoicing to enter into the presence of Yahweh and receive from him everlasting joy. In John 15, verse 5, we read, I am the vine. And this is a reference to that true vine uh, seen in Isaiah 5, and in, in the Song of the Vineyard. He, Jesus, the great I am, the great vine, is the source of life, the means of change and hope for a world that does not know the life that he offers. In each of these examples, Jesus takes something that we can understand, be it bread or light or a door or a shepherd, To help describe what it means when the great I am enters into their life. Salvation has arrived. A relationship with God is possible. For the great I am, the one who created life, he now offers eternal life. Life in the future, but also life now that so you could have a life that is really lived. We can know the resurrection and we can know the life as we receive the bread of life and walk in the light and go through the door and go on the way following the good shepherd as branches joined to the living vine. So the claim to be God and the use of I am is quite common in John. Probably most obvious in John 8, 58 to 59, uh, and it's most obvious because you can see uh, the reaction of the religious establishment, because it was very clear that they understood what Jesus was saying when he was using the great I am for himself. This is what it says, Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. No, they pick up the stones. They seek his death and in the end they will see him crucified for the crime of blasphemy, of claiming to be God. In Mark 14 and 62, Jesus declares to the court that was determined to kill him, that he is the great I am. And they respond with tearing their clothes and sentencing him to death for blasphemy, for daring to claim that he is God for declaring to them that he was the one who met with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and David and Elijah and many others and who even now had come to save men. Now the reason I attach this uh, Similar reference to divinity here with Jesus saying, I am. And more than just simply identifying who he is, is actually, again, in the response of the hearers. Uh, what is happening here is more than just that simple identification. For when he says these words, the response of the men is to fall down before him, as we see in verse 6. And this, of course, is a very common experience when men face God. From Abraham to Isaiah to the elders in Revelation... Jesus as God, as the great I am, speaking to these men who had the temerity to imagine that they could take him against his will. Well, that is the point here. The authority of Jesus as God. And this authority sees him again take the initiative as he repeats the question, asking them who they seek. Such is the control that having again identified himself as the one that they seek... He commands them to arrest him and let his followers go, in verse 8. Now, into this demonstration of absolute authority comes the rather unfortunate intervention of Peter, as we see in verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, given the foreknowledge and authority of Christ, the actions of Peter are utterly unnecessary. Uh, And this is primarily the case because Jesus is in complete control. However, this shows that Peter has seriously misunderstood the situation he finds himself in. Uh, Not only is the sword-wielding attack not needed, it's also unhelpful. His actions are brave, but they are foolhardy. Given the small band of disciples and given who they were facing, uh, there was no chance that they would fight their way out. Indeed, it could well have caused a rather severe reaction uh, from the soldiers. Uh, Also, the possession um, of a sword uh, and the use of it against another, someone of some social status as well, uh, renders him vulnerable to prosecution, a fact that may well have contributed to his threefold denial later. Ultimately, it is unhelpful in the mission that Jesus has set his mind to, the cross that lies before him. And Jesus is determined to drink from that cup. Even at this final moment in the garden, uh, the disciples do not understand that the mission of Christ required his death. He has rebuked them previously for their lack of understanding, of their unwillingness to hear what it is that he has plainly said to them. Peter himself has previously been on the receiving end of a rather sharp rebuke over this very subject, as we see recorded in Matthew 16, verses 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get me behind me, Satan. Now you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. And now, even even after all of this, despite all that, uh, Peter thinks to stand in the way of Jesus and his mission. The mission that he's been set on for millennia, and Jesus has to rebuke him again. Now, this is not the last time that Peter will get things wrong. Uh, His is a story that has as many ups and as well as downs. Um, And there's a lot that we can actually see of ourselves reflected in him. Ultimately, in the hands of God, though, and this is important, he becomes the man who is able to preach openly and see thousands repent on the day of Pentecost. He becomes a key figure in the early church and the gospel going to the Gentiles. Uh, He is a blessing to countless generations because he becomes the man that can be inspired to write 1st and 2nd Peter. He is an example of what it means to meet with Jesus, the great I Am, to have life given to him now, to have the light to walk by, to be changed By the life of Christ. And we will, of course, come back to him next week when we read about arguably his lowest point. For now, uh, Jesus, who is in complete control, is taken into custody. He allows himself to be bound like a criminal and brought first to Annas, this patriarch of the high priests, father in law of the current high priest Caiaphas. Uh, the one who, of course, uh, Caiaphas was the one who in John 11.50 had said that it was better for one man to die than the whole nation be destroyed, a uh, reference to here at the end of our passage. However, his words echo Daniel 9.24-26, which describes the coming of the Messiah. It actually tells them that the Messiah was to be at the time that Jesus was ministering. It tells us of the mission of the Messiah, His mission being the end of sin, the reconciliation with God and an ushering in of righteousness. It also says that the Messiah was going to die on behalf of the people. And so even unwittingly, Caiaphas simply serves to fulfil the purposes of Christ. Caiaphas chooses to see this man who claims to be God destroyed. Yet even so, Jesus remains in control. Jesus lets him because Jesus is focused on his mission towards the cross. Now before I finish, it is good for us as we read this text to remember that the God we read about in Genesis to Revelation, the great I Am, revealed to Moses and later through these disciples here, he remains the same, yesterday, today, forever. Now there's a Travis Green song that, that has a line I find articulates this perfectly. Um, who you were is who you are. And who you are is who you always have been. Yesterday, today and forever. You are God. And so the one who created life, who invented light, who comes to us even now, offering the same thing to us. I I often describe him as the author of life, by which I mean he is the one who spoke life into existence, who breathed life into Adam. And it is no surprise that he will go on to defeat death with Jesus bursting from the tomb It means that we get to hold on to the promise of life as we look to the one who will vanquish death forever. It means that the breath we have in our lungs comes from him. And it is for us to use each breath in praise of him and with a willingness to tell others of our Saviour, the life giver, the great I am.